This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, June 13th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Brand new broadcast week here on the program. So happy to have you along every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And we always encourage you to listen live. Many ways to do so. And you can check those out at GuyBensonShow.com. If you can't, we have a podcast for that. Also free of charge, on demand every day after the show is over, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you aren't terribly familiar with us or with me, we're grateful that you're giving us a shot. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm political editor at TownHall.com and a Fox News contributor, in addition to my radio duties here hosting this show every day. In my TV capacity, I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Bayer and that whole team on the panel around 645 Eastern time on Fox News Channel. Here on the radio side, line up Andy McCarthy joining us in studio from New York later on this hour. Britt Hume talking politics in our next hour and Jason Rance also in studio up in New York coming up in our final hour, the happy hour, just around two hours from right now. So a lot to get to on the program today, and I want to start with this. We discussed it last week for all the obvious reasons. It was, in my view, the biggest story of the week, but you wouldn't know it because it certainly was not treated as such by most of our brethren in the press. The mainstream press covered, to some extent, the fact that a left-winger traveled across the country with an arsenal of weapons and showed up basically at the doorstep of a Supreme Court justice with the intention of assassinating him. That is something that happened. He got the address online because the justices on the conservative side of the court have been doxxed by left-wing agitators, something that to this day has not been condemned by the White House. In fact, as of this morning, and I was just Googling it to make sure, President Biden has not said a word about the murder plot against a Supreme Court justice. And it wasn't just an empty threat. It was someone in dark clothes who took a taxi to the house with a gun and a knife, duct tape, zip ties, pepper spray, ammunition. He saw U.S. Marshals armed and ultimately decided that he couldn't go through with it. He didn't want to mess with them. So he turned himself in. But he admitted openly, I am here to kill Justice Kavanaugh. And attempted murder charges had been filed. That was last week. Not a peep from the president, nothing about the doxing from the White House. 
they have gone out of their way to avoid condemning that, dating back to the circle back era with Jen Psaki. We noted late last week, and I made this point when I was on Outnumbered as well on Fox News, the day after it happened, there was a tiny blurb at the very bottom of the front page of the New York Times encouraging readers to read all about it on the 20th page of the newspaper that day, A20. And their headline on the tiny blurb was arrest made near justice's home about as boring and nondescript as possible. And there are developments on this. There are more examples of this type of, I don't even know whether to call it media bias. I'm not sure what the term should be. Some people call it corruption, blindness. I don't know. But I think we all understand that if, let's say, a right-wing white nationalist from Idaho had traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. with weapons, and he found the home address of Justice Sonia Sotomayor or soon-to-be Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, found that address on the Internet because a bunch of right-wingers like Proud Boys had published those addresses online. So this guy found the address published by his ideological buddies. And he had heard, let's say, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, go to the Supreme Court steps and rant and rave against the liberal justices, making sort of menacing, threatening statements like this in Cut 5. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. You will pay the price. You won't know what hit you. Let's pretend that was Mitch McConnell. Into the megaphone. Screaming by name at Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. And then the Proud Boys had doxed the justices, publicized their home addresses. You had right-wing rallies outside their houses on the regular. And then this guy from Idaho with his gun shows up, is stopped before he's able to get to the house because he sees armed security. And he tells him, oh, yeah, I am whipped up and I'm angry about areas of jurisprudence that Republicans have been engaged in hyperbolic and intense rhetoric around and about for weeks, and I was here to kill them. I was here to kill her. Is that an A20 story in the New York Times? Here's the update from over the weekend. In Washington, D.C. in particular, you have the news divisions of the major networks who bow at the altar of the almighty signature Sunday morning show. This is a big deal. It's the big leagues. Meet the press on NBC. Face the nation on CBS. The week on ABC. CNN show is called State of the Union. And, of course, we have here Fox News Sunday. So there are five 
Sunday morning shows. They are hyper-political, very granularly focused on politics, D.C., D.C.-centric. Fox News Sunday covered the fact that there was an assassination plot foiled and attempted murder charges filed in that incident at Justice Kavanaugh's home just a few days prior. Not one of the other shows, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, not one of them even mentioned it. It was not even mentioned on the broadcasts. I saw a few people pointing out that on ABC, they did have a whole sort of puff piece about the White House press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, and her LGBTQ identity because it's Pride Month. So they had a little soft, gauzy piece about that. Fine. There's time for that. No time for the murder plot against the Supreme Court justice. Bias doesn't cover it. When a lot of conservatives and even just other intellectually honest people express contempt for the news media and the media and our current state of American journalism feels irredeemable, it's because of things like this. The alternate reality scenario that I painted involving Sotomayor and all the counterfactuals just taking all the details and flipping them over to the other side of the ideological spectrum or the aisle. If all of that had just happened, what, Wednesday, spilling into Thursday, it would have gotten far more attention and it would have been the lead story on ABC, NBC, CBS and CNN on the Sunday show. Relatedly, I briefly mentioned this last week, but there was another one this time in Oregon. There was a pro-life crisis pregnancy center that was firebombed by left-wing terrorists. Let me just make this as clear as possible. There is currently a criminal, violent terrorism campaign being waged against pro-life organizations around the country. There have been at least four firebombings and arson incidents. There was one up in Buffalo, New York a few days ago, and then over the weekend, one in Oregon. Four. There have been close to two dozen incidents of vandalism along these lines. You have in some of the cases a left-wing group claiming responsibility for these thuggish acts of terrorism. And that's the point. The point is to terrorize. They spray paint, if abortion isn't safe, neither are you. That's one of their unofficial slogans. It is explicitly domestic terrorism. And it's gotten scant to non-existent coverage in the news media, with a few exceptions, the usual exceptions. And you'll get a couple local stories. That's the game that they always play. Conservatives say, look at the degree to which they aren't covering something really significant, knowing full well, and we all understand that, again, if the shoe were on the other foot, the coverage would look and sound extremely different. And they say, oh, no, look, here's a link. It was covered. And so, yeah, here's the New York Times story on page 20. Here's the local news account, one and done, just a one-off. It was not and has not been even close to this all-consuming story that it would be 
if you had some anti-abortion fringe group out there bombing abortion clinics, four of them, setting fire to the abortion clinics in the middle of the night, spray painting threats across the country, dozens of examples, in the middle of a big national controversy around abortion, we all understand that this would be a gigantic national news cycle and crisis. And journalists would be chasing Republicans all over Capitol Hill. Will you condemn? Is that enough? Look at the climate of hate. Look at the dangerous rhetoric. Look at these violent anti-abortion zealots. That is what it would be. And people like me, pro-lifers, would be on the defensive, denouncing the violence, of course, but having to do it Anytime we discuss anything around abortion, because they would want to make it all about the clinic, the, the clinic bombings. That's what they would do. You know it. I know it. We all know that's what would happen. And yet with the exact same type of thing happening, and also imagine how pro-abortion you have to be, not pro-choice, how pro-abortion, that's the, the radical element here, how pro-abortion you have to be that you're actually setting fire or bombing places that are just trying to help women choose not to have abortions. That's what this is, like helping women bring their children to term. That's what these people are engaged in. That's their life's work. Those are the targets of the terrorism. It's outrageous. Do I think that it represents most pro-choice people? Obviously not. Has a single Democrat been asked about this? To condemn, to denounce, would they do it? I think they probably would, but I don't know. The White House won't condemn the doxing of Supreme Court justices' homes. There's a lot of ends justifying the means stuff going on right now in this country. And the media is totally invested in a narrative. And the narrative is there's a domestic violence and a political violence problem in this country. A domestic terrorism, political violence problem in this country, and it resides on the political right. It's a right-wing problem. That's the story, and they're sticking to it. And when there are examples, you could even say example after example after example, on the other side of the spectrum, because I think we do have this problem on both sides, those are just categorized differently or ignored or just very briefly covered. Like when that guy shot up the... Republican baseball practice and almost murdered Steve Scalise and wanted a mass assassination. The news vans and cameras were on site at that baseball field for less than two days. My best friend, Mary Catherine Ham, lived right there. She kept track of it. The news vans were outside a former Republican staffer's parents' house for longer after the staffer said something snotty about Barack Obama's daughter's clothes that they were wearing the news vans were outside that low-level staffers parents house for longer than they were at the baseball field where a guy tried to murder a bunch of republican congressmen and this is how they play this game like oh to be sure we do not support violence but when this stuff happens on one side it just gets buried And I said it's not just conservatives who recognize this. There's also an element, I think, of intellectually honest people who see it as well. Bill Maher on his show on Friday. This was before the Sunday shows, minus Fox News Sunday, 
totally blacked out the story on the Kavanaugh assassination. He was just talking about the New York Times, which at least covered it a little bit. In cut one, Marr makes a point that I think is indisputable. The point I would agree with is the New York Times buried this. Yeah, it was like if a this tiny had been thing a, below the fold. If this had been a liberal Supreme Court justice that someone came to kill, it would, have been on the, it would have been on the front page. And that's what's so disappointing about a paper like the New York Times. Because they just wear their bias on their sleeves. And they, if it's not part of something that feeds our narrative, it. If it's not something that feeds our narrative, bleep it. That might as well be the unofficial slogan of the mainstream media these days on a number of subjects. This one is just particularly glaring and galling. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Just getting started on this Monday. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Perfect illustration of what we're talking about in the opening segment. Right now, both of our competitors, MSNBC and CNN, right now are covering this plot that I guess local police in Idaho uncovered of some Proud Boys or some white nationalists to disrupt a pride parade. They were going to go and riot at a pride parade. Now, we'll wait and see all the details if that's true. It's terrible. Don't do that. No violence. Leave people alone. Obviously. That story is getting tons of attention. Like the Kavanaugh thing is already in the rearview mirror. Oh, well, that's in the past. It got to check the box, did a little bit of coverage, and now we're on to the type of threat of political violence that they want to talk about. The correct narrative. So we're on to that. Now, look, no pride parade in Idaho or anywhere else should be disrupted with violence. It's also in a different category of seriousness in terms of our government, our way of life, our system. than violent threats and murder plots against sitting Supreme Court justices. It's just like the timing could not have been any better. I'm making the point about double standards. We go to commercial break. I look up at our screens here in the studio, and CNN and MSNBC are all in with panels and live reports from Idaho, very concerned about what happened. I'm not saying it's not a news story, but you look at the relative coverage, the decibels, the volume, the intensity, the concern, the amount of time that things are covered, it speaks for itself. And it's why the trust problem is bad and getting worse. They've earned it. They've earned it. And then they look around like, oh, why do so many people believe misinformation? Because you're a source of it in many cases, and they don't believe Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Good of you to be here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day. Joining us now is Andy McCarthy, a Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books. I follow him on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, welcome back. Guy, great to be with you. And he's joining us of that crystal clear How about that, quality huh? from our uh, from our HQ up in New York City. It's I was I was forgetting for a moment that you were not on the phone. It's like, oh, listen to the, the dulcet tones of Andy McCarthy <laughs> here on the high quality microphone. I'm loving it. Man, I've been called a lot of things, guy. Dulcet has never been one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a first time for everything, Andy. I want to ask you as we get going about today's January 6th committee hearing. There were, what, about two hours of proceedings earlier this morning. I'll confess, I didn't watch any of it. I watched with great interest last week, and we covered it here on the show. I'm sort of hanging back in the subsequent hearings and waiting to see what comes out, if there's news. There's a few, I think, clips of Bill Barr and his testimony that was video recorded that people are buzzing about today. You were watching it. You were part of the special coverage on Fox News. What stood out to you today? What jumped out at you, if anything, about today's hearing. Well, you're right that Bill Barr's testimony was the highlight. Now, the committee was planning to have Bill Stepien, who was Trump's campaign manager, testify. And he had, uh, I think his wife went into labor, so he had to bail on the hearing. Um, So we don't know what that all, you know, what impact that would have had. But I thought, Guy, that, you know, Barr's deposition testimony the snippets that were played from it is compelling. I wish the committee, I hope the committee will release the entirety of it. Uh, but what we saw today was uh, it was compelling. But again, you know, it was not anything we hadn't heard before. Or if, or if you read Bill's book, um, that you wouldn't have uh, gotten uh, a real flavor of and a lot of detail about. And I just think, and may I feel like a, a little bit of a broken record on this, but I just think that his testimony reminded me as I sat there and listened to it that cases and and adversary hearings are won and lost not by the lawyers or the party affiliation uh, and perspective of the participants. They rise and fall on the witnesses and the, the documentary evidence. And I think the committee's really deserved its important purpose of getting to the bottom of January 6th by failing to have a proceeding that allowed cross-examination of witnesses like Barr, because I think Barr would have done great on cross-examination and it would have made for a much stronger case and it would have undercut the claims, which are strong claims, that this is not a reliable fact-finding exercise with integrity because they're not allowing any other perspective except the unanimous anti-Trumpism of the nine members of the committee. Right, because there had also been this commission that was offered, which would have been bipartisan, actually bipartisan. Republicans rejected that. Then it went on to the House committee, and initially Republicans were participating, and Kevin McCarthy had offered some names to be on the Republican side. Pelosi rejected several of them, and then McCarthy said, okay, we're out, pulled everyone out. Pelosi put Cheney and Kinzinger on there, both Republicans, both conservative in a lot of ways, but clearly very anti-Trump. So you have unanimity, at least uh, from a perspective on this particular issue. 
on the panel. What would be better? What would lend this more credibility in your mind, a realistic a realistic alternative? Well, what I've proposed, Gaia, is two things. One, I think the committee should be transparent about what it's trying to accomplish, which it's not being. I, I've I've argued a number of times that this committee is conducting the impeachment investigation that the House failed to conduct in January of 2021 after the attack. And the reason that's important is Congress is not the executive branch. It's not a grand jury. It's not a prosecutor. It doesn't have jurisdiction to do criminal investigations, which a number of the members of the committee have been very forward about the fact that that's what they're trying to establish. The place where they have jurisdiction to do that is in finding whether there were high crimes and misdemeanors, which is an impeachment proceeding. And I think they ought to be transparent that that's what they actually like to accomplish. What they're trying to do uh, is establish a basis for disqualifying Trump from holding future office. And then I think you should expand the committee. I wouldn't knock Janie and Kinzinger off. I think they, they, you know, they bring a lot to the table. But there are other perspectives here. Uh, and I think the mainstream Republican perspective, which is more complex than just saying it's it's pro-Trump, is not represented. More importantly, um, you know, the the speaker departed from two centuries of norm by not allowing the minority to pick its own members. And they've got nothing to be worried about by having who cares if Jim Jordan gets on the committee uh, and and has an occasional tirade about inadequate security, say, on January 6th. The point is he wouldn't have been able to lay a glove on, on Bill Barr, and he's a smart enough guy that I don't even think he'd have tried. I wonder, because I think you're making points that a lot of conservatives agree with on the process here and the flawed nature of the committee. I've said before, I think having, like having Adam Schiff there, is a problem. You know, right. if the guy continues to say that there was collusion between Trump and Russia, even though that's not true, it's been disproven by even the Mueller crew, and he keeps saying it. And you put him back up there, it's like, okay, this is just you know a partisan who's willing to lie. I think that's one of their issues that they're contending with. I also think just on the substance, we are learning some new things. Like last Thursday night, we learned some new things and new alleged things, at least, about what was said, certain timelines. It's not all old news. I think that's incorrect when some conservatives have made that complaint. But just in the main, on the whole, I find a lot of the stuff very compelling to be bad for Trump because I think the reality is bad for Trump. I just don't really know if it's a sea change beyond what I already felt, which was this was a national disgrace. Trump bore a lot of responsibility for it. I said that shortly after January 6th. I said it during all the impeachment stuff when we got a lot of similar things. I'm saying it again here. I'm fine with really making sure that there is a full and complete historical record of what happened. And I think that a lot of people don't really want to talk about some of the inconvenient truths about what led up to that day and the culpability. But I think you know the substance is – Extremely bad. I think it's damning. Damning. I'm just not sure, aside from, yes, a few things here or there, that it's new enough that it really moves the needle very much for, for anyone. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm just you know, cynical, but that's kind of my take. I don't, Guy, I really don't think so. I mean, I, 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 what I'm saying is I don't think you're being cynical in the sense that, you know, look, this is something Trump was impeached over. 
And he would have been removed uh, if it hadn't been at the end of his administration. In fact, the rationale re- – remember, most of the votes in the Senate were actually to remove him. It's, he was saved by the two-thirds supermajority requirement in the Constitution. And a lot of the re- Republicans in the Senate validated or justified their vote to acquit him not on the ground that he was innocent, but on their constitutional objective that you shouldn't be impeaching a a, no, a non-incumbent president, no post-presidency impeachment. So, you know, this was serious enough at the time to impeach the president and would have resulted in his removal had it not been for the timing of it. And I, I, I guess the point is that this was pretty outrageous when it happened, and what I sort of resent about all of this is the claim that people are apathetic about it at this point, when I think the reality is Trump has not been president for 18 months. The world has turned around a number of times. We have a lot of different issues that we're dealing with at the moment. Trump's not able to impact any of them because he's not relevant anymore. He's not in office anymore, and those of us um, – who aren't like tripping over ourselves over this set of hearings. It's not that we're apathetic about it. It's that all of America saw this happen on live television at the time it happened. A lot of us understood exactly why it happened and made up our mind about both it and Trump at the time. So it was outrageous then. It's still outrageous, but you know, it's, it's 18 months later and we've moved on. And there's a lot of really bad things happening in the country right now. Uh, Trump nowhere near any of it. And the Democrats in charge of everything. And it's like, oh, well, unless you share our outrage, uh, this incandescent anger at the exact same volume and the exact same ferocity and the exact same sort of prioritized, um, you know, anger over this, then you're soft on it or you're, you know, you're an apologist or something. I don't think that's true. Uh, The Democrats run the country now. And the results have been quite bad in many ways. And January 6th doesn't change that. Right? January 6th doesn't change the outcomes or the results of their governance. You can think multiple things and sort of you know, walk and chew gum at the same time and say, yep, that was extremely bad, very dangerous, hated it for all these reasons. Also, Democrats are giving average voters, independents, very little reason to vote for them again because – it's not like, oh, people are all of a sudden pro-capital riot. Right. They just don't want to pay $5 a gallon for gas. Right, right. Well, you know, look, I, mean, the, the, I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I just think, you know, look, if, if the Republicans are foolish enough to, to uh, re-nominate Trump and they open all this up again and we can have a campaign about that. But at the moment, it's not really that relevant. He's not on the stage anymore. He's not able to affect events. And, you know, I'm getting to be an old guy now. I'm over 60. A lot of things have happened in my lifetime. I know exactly how I feel about them. A lot of things very bad for America have happened in those 60 years. I know how I feel about them. I don't need to have a hearing once, you know, every week or every month to be reminded of how I think about them. Andy, let's shift to a development last week out in California Chesa Boudin, the pro-criminal district attorney in San Francisco, thrown out by voters in San Francisco. It wasn't close. 20-point loss for him there. He's been recalled. It looks like they're going to try to do the same thing, perhaps with similar success in Los Angeles. 
the tide at least on some level is turning on the issue of crime, Andy. And I think uh, we were talking on TV yesterday on the big show about some of the numbers out of the NYPD. I know this is an issue close to your heart. People are quitting, leaving, retiring early from NYPD at a record clip, much higher this year than even in 21 or 20. And when you have cops basically throwing in the towel and saying they don't feel supported, why bother doing the job? That comes down to prosecutors and charging decisions and whether or not the laws are actually going to be enforced. And it looks like, I guess, you know, the good news, Andy, is even though there's there's a lot of bad news and it might take quite a while to correct some of this stuff, even the most progressive voters in the most progressive places can only take so much of it before a course correction is at least attempted here. And that's what we're seeing in, of all places, San Francisco and now perhaps beyond. Yeah, I think that's right. I also uh, completely endorse what you say about the fact that this could take a, a while. You know, we shouldn't think that because we have these two blips on the radar, which from a law enforcement perspective are hopeful, uh, that the tide has turned. Because you could just as easily, Guy, look at the other side of the country where Larry Krasner, who is kind of the East Coast version of Chesa Boudin in, in terms of this model of progressive prosecutor, mm-hmm. uh, he did many of the same things that uh, that Boudin did policy-wise. And when he ran for reelection, he won with 75 percent of the vote. Uh, now he's destroying the city and a lot of people, you know, part of the reason he wins the vote so one-sidedly is a lot of people are throwing up their hands in these big cities and moving out. Um, and, you know, you have to bear in mind the reasons that Chisa Boudin happened in the first place, which is that there are uh, immense funding streams that back the left, uh, which perceived a uh, these people perceived an opportunity. These DA elections tend to be one party affairs, and they've always been kind of um, minor in terms of uh, the funding that goes into the campaigns. And they realized that if they overwhelm these usually five figure at most six figure uh, campaign budget type things, if they overwhelmed them with money and resources, they could pretty much elect who they wanted to elect. And they've been very yep. successful doing it around the country. That hasn't changed well, and, and, yet. And just to just to put a finer point on it, it's George Soros and his network of people, right. of course, the billionaire. He spent and we we put the graphic up on the screen yesterday on TV around $40 million on DA races in cities over the last 10 years, and they've elected dozens of these folks. We've just talked about some of the more high-profile ones. And look, you know, they're playing within the rules. They're trying to change the country the way they want to change the country. A lot of people aren't liking that change and might be waking up to this, but this was an investment that has been a pretty high ROI for these people, at least so far. And I mentioned Soros by name just because we often get, Andy, these scolding lectures about how you're not allowed to mention him. (laughs) Right-wing billionaires in politics, bad, evil, big problem. Left-wing billionaires in politics, you can't really talk about them by name. Whether you want to talk about Soros or people in his orbit, you made the point. Millions of dollars are being poured into some of these races uh, in in one-party cities, hence the radical policies. Briefly, Andy, last word to you. 
I think we need to catch up with this because what they realized was if you control executive power, you control what laws get enforced. It's much more efficient from their perspective than like controlling a legislature. Right. You, they've sort of shifted from defund the police to make the police almost irrelevant right. because you're going to arrest people and put them right into this revolving door back on the street within hours, the bail reform and all these other things. You know, I guess the term is discretion, right, prosecutorial discretion. Right. That's a much more direct line to the outcomes that they want. Problem is the outcomes are resulting in crime sprees and terrible incentives and morale problems in neighborhoods, communities, and police forces. Got to leave it there for now. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor himself. Andy, thank you. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. This broke yesterday, a bipartisan agreement in the Senate. They're calling it on guns. That's the way it's being referred to in the media, although a lot of it really has nothing to do with guns. But this is the response to the Uvalde shooting. Ten Republicans, ten Democrats in the Senate. They've reached this, I guess, accord on an outline of a bill. And I think it's important to wait until we have actual legislative language. Some of the details will matter a lot. But overall, it would include funding for mental health resources. It would boost school safety budgets. It would improve grants to states, encouraging them to implement red flag laws. It would expand the nation's background check system to include juvenile records for prospective gun owners or at least prospective gun buyers under the age of 21. I think that actually is a a significant and important element of this. It includes a provision to address what is known as the so-called boyfriend loophole, prohibiting dating partners from owning guns if they've been convicted of domestic violence. And according to the New York Times, falls far short overall of the sprawling reforms that Democrats were hoping for. We will look into this and we will talk about it in some depth this week on this show. I'm open to a lot of it. More discussion and debate to come. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Underway in a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three, between three and six p.m. Eastern time every weekday. It is the Guy Benson Show. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free on demand every day. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. Or follow me personally on both of those platforms. My handle is at Guy P. Benson. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Bayer and the panel right around 645 Eastern on Fox News Channel. I'll hope to see you there. As we enter our middle hour, let's bring you a Fox News alert. The Dow crushed today, down 876 points at the close. It's actually off-session lows. That was after a bit of a recovery at the end of the trading day, but down 876 to 30,516. And joining us now to discuss the state of the U.S. economy and American politics is Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. Britt, welcome back. Thanks, Guy. Glad to be with you. 
We played this bite on Friday, and I was on the big Saturday and big Sunday show on the news channel over the weekend as well, and I think we played the clip every day. I just am wondering when President Biden and his team are going to decide that the Putin talking point when it comes to anything bad happening in the country simply is not working and might be actively angering and insulting people. Here's what the president said on Friday when he was reacting to really bad inflation numbers, worse than expected inflation numbers, married with record highs on gas prices. He went back to that same well again, cut 19. I understand Americans are anxious, and they're anxious for good reason. I was raised in a household when the price of gasoline rose precipitously. It was the discussion at the table. It made a difference when food prices went up. But we've never seen anything like Putin's tax on both food and gas. Putin's tax on food and gas and bread. It's just like, it's tiresome. Yeah, I agree, Guy, and I don't think the public will be much convinced that uh, Putin is responsible for the rise in gasoline prices and other prices as well, for the simple reason that these prices were going up sharply before the uh, war in Ukraine began. Now, that's not to say that that uh, that the war in Ukraine hasn't exacerbated the situation. I think it has. Right. Right. But even if that were, even if it, even if it were if it were even more Putin's fault than seems to be the case. It's still the job of the president of the United States, by virtue of policies, to try to counteract it. And the evidence that any any successful counteracting has happened is not exactly apparent. Things seem to be worsening. Yep. And there are some discussions in Washington, D.C. and beyond. There's a big New York Times story about it that we will talk about later this hour about Democrats starting to look for maybe an off-ramp. When it comes to Joe Biden in 2024, not excited about his prospects. I see the press secretary just moments ago at the press briefing at the White House insisted that the president is running for reelection in 24. I'm dubious of that. We'll get into that a little bit later on in the hour. But on the other side of the aisle, Britt, there's a Washington Post story headline. The shadow race is underway for the Republican presidential nomination. Subhead. At least 15 potential 2024 candidates are traveling the country, huddling with donors or testing out messages, even if Trump runs. And they name not all 15 of the people in this piece, but it's Pence, it's Cotton, it's DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Larry Hogan, Ted Cruz, Tim Scott, Rick Scott, Mike Pompeo. I know there's some discussion about Marco Rubio as well. Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, who's termed out uh, as the governor there. Those are some of the names in the mix. And then, of course, there's uh, the former president, Donald Trump, who there are rumors that he's thinking about even announcing that he's going to seek another term as soon as next month. He might do it before the midterms around July 4th. At least that's something that they're allegedly toying with down at Mar-a-Lago. I know it's extremely early days, Brett, but I'm just wondering what you make of these types of stories and how you view the landscape looking ahead, not to this upcoming election cycle, but the big one a couple of years from now. Well, I think Trump would like to run, uh, but it's impossible to tell from what he's doing whether he really intends to or not, because, you know, even if he were not, 
he would want to be the center of attention because he always wants to be the center of attention and will be the, and would want to be the center of attention if he doesn't run because that's how Trump is. So he doesn't give us many really good clues by his actions. Um, his preoccupation, continuing preoccupation with what happened in or what he claims happened in 2020, I think is a is a very weak issue to try to mount a further campaign on. Um, I think people have moved on and are moving on, and the only people that are preoccupied with 2020 right now, um, or the 2020 campaign and its aftermath, are Donald Trump. And that committee in Congress purports to be conducting an investigation of it. Um, that's where we and are. And the media, right? So you've got yeah, you've got the Democrats, well, you've got the media, you've got the committee, and Trump. I mean, that's the thing. If Trump were to let it go and move forward, then I think it might take the wind out of those sails a little bit. But as long as he's very happy to keep fighting about what happened two years ago and his claims most of which have been disproven or debunked, if he wants to keep going, they are more than happy to keep going. And I think they would be thrilled to have 2020 be a central issue of the 2024 presidential campaign. And seemingly the only Republican in the country who agrees with them is Trump himself, who can't let it go because I don't think he can admit that he lost. And I mean, that would perhaps, you know, fuel his agenda, it would make them, it'd be a gift, in my view, to them. It seems like all these other Republicans are saying, we'd love to move forward, but there's the 800-pound gorilla here. Is Trump going to go for it? And if so, does anyone have a shot at actually you know, beating him out for the nomination? The, the, the Democrats' perfect outcome would be the following. Trump uh, continues to talk about 2020, uh, and they do as well, thereby damaging Trump's prospects going forward. And then he runs again. So that's the best of all worlds. A damaged Donald Trump, who might well not be able to be elected anyway, making that pro- making his success even less likely. That's perfect for the Democrats. I don't, and I think, you know, if, he, if he's so damaged by these hearings uh, that he doesn't run or, 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 or can't because his popularity sinks, uh, that would be a good outcome for the Republicans, because I don't think that many Republicans think they can win with him again. I mean, there are obviously some who are devoted to him. Uh, they belong in a special category of people. Um, but I think they are less numerous by the day. That very well could be the case, Brett. And I think, you know, there's some polling and a few other little strands of information that would suggest that you're right about that. However, coming back to this Washington Post report, 15 potential candidates you start thinking about another one of these cattle calls where you have you know, two debate stages, the big kids table, the little kids table, a gazillion people running, and it's all splintered. You know, if I'm Trump or someone close to Trump and I'm wanting Trump to win the nomination again, I'm out there encouraging everyone and their brother to run for president because the more people clog up the process, the likelier Trump is to win because you pointed it out. He has a very loyal base of support that are Trump Republicans first above anything else. Let's say that number is in the 30, 35 percent range, just for the sake of argument. If there are 15 people or even 10 people or even eight people running for president, 35 percent would be enough to make him kind of win the thing in a waltz. I think they should welcome a huge amount of competition. Well, 
that might be right, Guy, if they were all able to stay in the race long enough to make a difference. But what's like, what's at least as likely to happen would be is that a whole bunch of them will want to run. They'll test the waters. They'll try to raise money. They'll try to mount some kind of campaign. Some will be able to, and a number will not, which might shrink the field before the, uh, before the race even really got started. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, Trump remains a big factor in all this. There's no doubt about that. And his intentions obviously matter a great deal. Um, but the events unfolding in Washington right now, I think, uh, will end up complicating things for him. Yeah, I mean, by that same token, the rumor, again, is that Trump is at least actively considering announcing a 2024 presidential campaign in 2022, not even waiting until after the midterm elections, which could cause some headaches for certain Republicans in the midterms. I think the Republicans are in good shape overall, regardless, in 22. But the thinking is reportedly that Trump wants to basically be the first person in, perhaps deterring other people from getting in, and also sending a signal to some people that he might be concerned about. Reports are he's very hung up on Ron DeSantis and wants to see, he might even announce near or around Tallahassee to send a message to DeSantis, I'm in charge, I'm, I'm the big guy here, not you. He wants to do it so early that he might you know, keep other people out or build up a, a fundraising capacity that scares other people away. What do you make of that? Well, I think there's a chance that could happen. Uh, but I will say this, guy. I think this is important. Um, not so very long ago, the possibility of a Trump candidacy would have completely frozen the field and, 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 and ruled out most people. Now you've got stories, as you point out, uh, including the Washington Post, saying you know, there are as many as 15 people who would like to run. Some undoubtedly right. will, whether he runs or, runs or not. So and, and in the meantime, we see polling evidence um, of his declining influence, which is not to say it isn't strong. It still is. But you know, there is a poll question that's been asked. I think you and I have talked about this before, which is asking Republicans whether they consider themselves more as, as followers of Donald Trump. Republican or Republicans or Trump Republicans. And, and the former group is now heavily in the lead. Good point. Britt Hume on The Guy Benson Show. I'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. We well, see that U.S. gasoline prices now up to five ten a gallon on average, which is just an astonishing thing to say. Five ten a gallon. We'll be talking a lot more about this this week and just in the days to come. It's the number one story in the country: inflation and gas prices. That's it. Now the Democrats are going to try to throw a bunch of chum in the water and create a bunch of news cycles, and I think they're just going to get totally overwhelmed by what people are paying for basically everything right now. And there's an expectation that things are going to get worse, unfortunately. The CPI number last week was a shocker, worse than expected, 8.6% overall year over year, and you look at the individual things, different commodities and products, the price is going up. It is painful. It's painful. And as these inflation numbers continue to worsen and deteriorate and American families feel that, it becomes harder and harder to achieve what people talk about as a soft landing, where the Fed can intervene to curb inflation, which is just eating up people's paychecks and giving a lot of Americans effectively a pay cut, even as their wages nominally go up in real terms, their wages are going down, their purchasing power down. 
So if the Fed's going to work to end inflation, which is elevated and at a 40-year high and not even plateaued, those measures that will be taken I think will have to be harsher, making the likelihood of avoiding a recession a lot less promising. But I think that threading of the needle becomes more and more challenging. I wanted to play for you a soundbite. This was from CNN yesterday. Larry Summers, a former top advisor to President Obama, he was Treasury Secretary. This is a serious person who's been in this position, and he correctly called the inflation problem last year. Like over a year ago, he was sounding in a very lonely way on the Democratic side alarm bells about inflation. And he was poo-pooed. He was dismissed. He was ignored. The White House said, oh, no, never mind that, man. It's transitory. It's mild. Full speed ahead. Let's spend trillions more. And then inflation kept going in the wrong direction, and Summers kept warning, and they said, nope, ignore that man even further. He's still wrong. Let's spend $5 trillion more. And they almost got their way. If not for one or two senators, they were going to pass $5 trillion more dollars in spending, new spending, which is just jaw-dropping, especially in the current context. Imagine how much worse things would be if Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer had gotten their way. If Joe Manchin hadn't slammed the brakes on this thing, imagine how much more pain, how much more trouble we would be in right now on inflation. So Summers was right on this problem. The administration was wrong, and they're kind of admitting it a little bit. Janet Yellen, the current Treasury Secretary, did an apology to her, still making excuses. But at least admitting she was wrong, the White House has been less forthcoming. Meanwhile, Yellen is also despite admitting to being really catastrophically wrong on inflation, she's trying to assure all of us that a recession is not coming. And there's no reason to worry about a recession, and we're not seeing those signs. All is well on the recession front. We mentioned that last week. So Larry Summers shows up on CNN yesterday, and Dana Bash asks him, do you agree with that? Just listen to this. Consider the credibility of the people involved here. Both Yellen and Summers consider the record, consider who was right and who was wrong last time on a huge question related to the direction of our economy, and then perhaps draw conclusions from cut 20. Secretary Yellen, who has the job you once had, said this week that, quote, there is nothing to suggest a recession is in the works. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. You think a recession um, is in the works? I think that when infl- I think when inflation is as high as it is right now and unemployment is as low as it is right now, it's almost always been followed within two years by inflation, by, by recession. I look at what's happening in the stock and bond markets. I look at where consumer sentiment is. I think there's certainly a risk of recession in the next year. But I think the optimists were wrong a year ago in saying we'd have no inflation, and I think they're wrong now. I think the optimists were wrong a year ago on inflation, and I think they're wrong now. And it's not just a gut feeling that Larry Summers is talking about. He's citing data and history. He's saying when you have these ingredients in history, when these things are happening at the same time, 
more often than not, in fact, quote, almost always, the result is recession within a year or two. So that's not guaranteed. No one's rooting for a recession. That would make things even more difficult for the American people. But we also have to be realistic about what might be coming. And I don't know about you, but I put more stock in what Mr. Summers has to say than virtually anyone currently in the administration because they're playing politics and doing so really burned them on inflation. He's just looking at the numbers. And if he's right, then there's a lot more disruption and discomfort to come, unfortunately. And we're all living through it together. When we come back, sort of relatedly, the rumor mill is on hyperdrive in Washington, D.C. Is Joe Biden really going to run for re-election? Can the Democrats afford to have him running again in 2024? Interesting palace intrigue. We'll dive into that when we return. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in on this Monday. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, right here and at GuyBensonShow.com for all of the program information that you might need. That includes the free podcast on demand every day. Well, I saw a transcript this weekend of something that President Biden had said. And it was from the official White House transcript, so it didn't seem likely to be fake news. But I was wondering, could there be some context here that I'm missing? Because this kind of looks a bit embarrassing. I saw a journalist from Bloomberg had tweeted it out. Basically, there were rumors, and there still are, it's been reported now by the Wall Street Journal and Reuters and others, that Joe Biden is planning to go and visit Saudi Arabia in the coming days for a number of different reasons, including basically begging them to produce more oil. Because we can't do that here. He's very hostile to that here. But gas prices are a giant problem for the American people and therefore a giant problem for the Democratic Party. And that's why we're seeing them go hat in hand looking for concessions in places like Venezuela and Saudi. And so Biden was asked, are you going to go to Saudi Arabia? Basically, has a decision been made? Are the rumors true? Keeping in mind that he has called the kingdom a pariah state. It was very harshly critical of the royal family, the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. These are things that Biden said pretty aggressively on the campaign trail. And now perhaps sheepishly, he's going to slink over to Saudi Arabia because they are still, despite major flaws, an important partner on a number of issues, whether it's energy or Iran. The list goes on. There were even reports recently that he tried to call someone in the Saudi government, and they wouldn't take his phone call. So I guess now this is a power play, like you've got to come to us type situation. And Biden was asked by a reporter in a scrum, one of those things where he sort of listens to some questions, and he's squinting in the sunlight, and then he's trying to answer the questions. And he was asked, has this plan been finalized? Have you made a decision about whether you're going to Saudi Arabia? So listen to his answer. It's a very straightforward answer to that question. And then the follow-up, he says something that sort of seems to contradict the answer that he had literally just given seconds earlier. Cut 18. 
Have you decided, you sir, whether to go to Saudi Arabia? No, not yet. What would be the uh, holding up the decision at this point? Are there commitments you're waiting for from the Saudis or on the negotiations over peace talks? No, no. The commitments from the Saudis don't relate to anything having to do with energy. It happens to be a larger meeting taking place in Saudi Arabia. That's the reason I'm going. Have you decided, sir, if you're going? No, I have not. If you go, would it be because of this? No, no, I'm not going because of that. There are other meetings, and that's why I'm going. This is fine. He's fine. Like 20 seconds apart. It's as if his brain told him, we haven't announced this yet, so we're not going to confirm it here. We're not making that news right here, right now. No, the decision has not been made. 20 seconds later, he's explaining why he is going to Saudi. Now, in the scheme of things, is this a terribly important development? No. Is this gaffe or apparent screw-up that big of a deal, particularly relative to other things that he said and done? No. But it's just another example of it very much seeming like this is a president who is not in full control or command of his faculties, of the facts, whatever it's going to be. And you wince. You watch that type of thing and you wince. And it's not just conservatives or critics who are doing the cringing. In the last couple of days, there was an op-ed in USA Today from Barack Obama's former director of global engagement, who was pretty scathing in his assessment of President Biden. He talked about the president's, quote, reckless rifts on foreign policy and gaffes that have, quote, unnecessarily undermined our standing and irresponsibly handed propaganda points to our adversaries. He wrote, it's undermined the country, especially when discussing diplomacy. Quote, how does such careless careening into crisis territory keep happening. Biden, he said, bears the lion's share of the blame for his ill-considered improvisation. But so, too, he concludes, are the national security team. Quote, they are all too aware that he has this troublesome tendency to go off script, and he counseled them to better prepare the president for obvious questions. The thing is, they really try to avoid him answering any questions which is why he hasn't done a news interview since early February. The Jimmy Kimmel thing doesn't count. That's not a news interview. That's not a journalist. That's a partisan. That's a partisan who also has a comedy show. That's not a serious interview. But when you get the Q&A like we just played for you out by the plane where you can hear it in the background, that's why the audio was so difficult to hear. Have you decided if you're going, sir? No, I have not. Why would you be going? Not for this reason. I'm going because this reason. It's like no staff can control that. He is who he is, and it's not going to get better, right? Just the opposite. It just kind of feels like it's slipping. So some of these prescriptions, blaming the staff, you need to fire some people. He's being badly advised. Ultimately, he can't perform. That's the problem. That's the problem that they have, which leads us to this long story over the weekend in The New York Times. Headline, should Biden run in 2024? Democratic whispers of no start to rise. 
from the story. Midway through the 2022 primary season, many Democratic lawmakers and party officials are venting their frustrations with President Biden's struggle to advance the bulk of his agenda, doubting his ability to rescue the party from a predicted midterm trouncing and increasingly viewing him as an anchor that should be cut loose in 2024. As the challenges facing the nation mount and a fatigued base fails to show enthusiasm, Democrats in union meetings, back rooms of Capitol Hill and party gatherings from coast to coast are quietly worrying about Mr. Biden's leadership, his age and his capability to take the fight to former President Donald J. Trump a second time. Most top elected Democrats were reluctant to speak on the record about Mr. Biden's future. And no one interviewed expressed any ill will toward Mr. Biden, to whom they are universally grateful for ousting Trump from office. But the repeated failures of his administration to pass big ticket legislation on signature Democratic issues, as well as his halting efforts to use the bully pulpit of the White House to move public opinion, have left the president with sagging approval ratings in a party that, as much as anything, seems to feel sorry for him. To nearly all Democrats interviewed, the president's age, 79 and 82 by the time the winner of the 2024 election is inaugurated, is a deep concern about his political viability. They have watched as a commander in chief who built a reputation for gaffes, has repeatedly rattled global diplomacy with unexpected remarks that were later walked back by the White House staff, as he has sat for fewer interviews than any of his recent predecessors. Mr. Biden has repeatedly said that he expects to run again in 2024. But if he does not, there is little consensus about who would lead the party. I'll come back to that in a second. But listen to this quote from David Axelrod, who is a big Obama Svengali, both in 08 and for the reelect in 2012. Quote, the presidency is a monstrously taxing job. And the stark reality is the president would be closer to 90 than 80 at the end of a second term. That would be a major issue, said Axelrod. He looks his age and isn't as agile in front of a camera as he once was. And this has fed a narrative about competence that isn't rooted in reality. Quote, isn't rooted in reality. I think the issue here is that it's very much rooted in reality. People see the president, they see his team, they see the results, and they conclude that he can't get the job done and he is incompetent. That is rooted very much in reality. I think that might just be Axelrod trying to temper the harshness of the quote otherwise, because he's basically leaning into the whole age thing. And in this case, look, if he were sharp as attack, Biden, it wouldn't matter that he's pushing 80. If he was really quick and on top of things and an able communicator and spry and energetic and all of that, The age thing wouldn't matter. It's all the accompanying issues that they can, I think, politely cite age as sort of a a catch-all explanation to sort of address the elephant, or I guess in this case the donkey in the room, of his declining performance on the national stage. That's why you're getting stories like this. That's why most of these people are off the record or going on background, talking to the New York Times. And I think the whispers will only get louder. Because we didn't see this. Look, Barack Obama in 2010, his party got wiped out. They had achieved a couple big things like Obamacare, part of the reason why they got wiped out. 
but they had checked some big boxes with the base. The country wanted to change. There was a huge backlash, and they lost 63 House seats. No one was talking about not nominating Obama again. It's a combination of the unpopularity, the perception that they haven't really gotten very much done, and the fundamental worries at their core about Biden as a person and his capacity at this point. Those things, I think, combine for stories like this. And it won't be the last one. I continue to believe, personally, that he's not going to run. I don't think he can run again. I don't think he has it in him. I don't think he's up to it physically or mentally. I don't. He had the great advantage in 2020 of being in a campaign against Donald Trump in the middle of a pandemic where it was seen as socially responsible and acceptable for him not to really campaign very much. So he could rest, be at home, hop into the news when he felt like it, get amped up for certain events like debates or the Democratic Convention, which was remote, of course, and then go back out of the spotlight. That was a strategy that was smart for them, that aligned with Biden's strengths and weaknesses and sort of played to his advantage there and was a unique moment in time. He can't do that again in 2024. That's not how the campaign's going to look. And if he's struggling the way that he already is in 2022, two years on from now, if I were a Democrat, I would also have all of these exact same concerns. I just don't think ultimately he can do it. Whether they've made that decision, I guarantee you there have been some quiet conversations at the DNC or even inside the White House about this. Because you don't want to declare that you're not running again too early. Then you're a lame duck. You also can't hold out forever to then sort of spring this on your party and they can't really have a proper primary. So I think at some point he's going to announce that he's not running again. They have to go through the motions that he is. They have to fundraise. They have to do all of those things. And maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe Biden's a stubborn guy and he's going to say, screw you, I'm the president. I want another term. Whether or not people around him are urging him or counseling him, let's reconsider. Let's not do it. This was always going to be sort of a bridge presidency, a transitionary presidency. He'll have a lot of people, I think, in his ear on that, but he might decide to go for it anyway. But again, my belief, my prediction is that he won't. Then the Democrats have their own predicament at that point. Because the heir apparent is arguably less electable than he would be in 2024. The vice president, her favorable numbers are terrible because she's so phony and weird and bad at politics. Right? She, when she ran for president, couldn't even get to Iowa. Despite all the hoopla around her announcement and being a top-tier candidate, she performed badly because she's not very good at this. But you think, as the sitting vice president, she's just going to go quietly into that good night and not run and not feel like she's, frankly, entitled to be the front runner? I mean, if they can convince her to step aside, then good luck. But I don't think that's going to be easy. I think she wants it, and she has shown in multiple pieces and some of the sniping that we've read about in recent months— these internal internecine wars, she and her team are more than happy to weaponize identity and play that card over and over again about her being a woman and a woman of color and her critics are uncomfortable with those types of things. I think she would wield that stuff ruthlessly in a Democratic primary where she has very high 
name ID, obviously, as the sitting vice president. Is that the person that they want as the standard bearer over there? And if not, dislodging her, I think, would be difficult and potentially very ugly. And look, if there's a recession underway, this might be a moot conversation anyway. Any Democrat might be doomed, depending on certain circumstances. AOC, the congresswoman from New York, was on CNN yesterday. She was asked, would you endorse Biden for reelection? And she didn't really want to commit to it. She punted on it. There was a follow-up, cut 15. That's not a yes. Yeah, you know, I think uh, we should endorse when we get to it. But I, I, I believe that the president has been doing a very good job uh, so far. And, um, you know, should he run again? I think that I, you know, I think it's, it's, we'll take a look. We'll take a look. And then she laughed. We cut it off, but she burst out laughing. It was awkward. She didn't want to be talking about it. She doesn't want to endorse him. She probably thinks he's probably not going to run again. So she was just talking around it. And I think there's a lot of Democrats in that position right now, and it's starting to bubble to the surface with this kind of piece planted with The New York Times, where they interviewed dozens of people who were feeling this way. And how couldn't they? Again, putting yourself in their shoes, watching this play out. Is there a single one of you in this audience right now who would say, yes, I would be all in for Joe Biden 2024. No reservations. It's going to be great. Anyone? Anyone. Like even the first lady, does she believe that? I have my doubts. 2024 watch already underway on the Guy Benson show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson show. Quick update out of Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis posting another huge fundraising Month Back in May, he raked in $10.2 million, trouncing his would-be Democratic opponents. His cash on hand is now $124 million. That's the war chest. Just a breathtaking number. We'll see how he deploys it. Obviously, DeSantis would love to run up the score in Florida and win big in 2022, perhaps with an eye to the future. Meanwhile, last week we told you that DeSantis was going to be in New York yesterday for an event for a Jewish group that had already been moved from one location to another. Then it was going to be at Chelsea Piers, and there was this big controversy, and lawmakers were demanding that Chelsea Piers cancel the event. And they tried. They really tried. There were protests. There was a whole pressure campaign, and ultimately Chelsea Piers allowed the event to go forward. DeSantis showed up and said, you're not going to cancel me. He also referred to New Yorkers as future Florida residents, which I thought was kind of funny. Chelsea Piers announced that they were not going to cancel the event, but due to the, quote, enormous distress that DeSantis's appearance had caused within their company, they were going to take all the money that they had earned from this event and donate it to LGBTQ causes while making clear that they can't stand Ron DeSantis. Enormous distress because someone that you disagree with politically is showing up to say words. Absolute children. Tolerance just isn't really a thing anymore. They're not even really pretending. That value is very passe. In fact, hateful, they would say. Tolerance is hateful. That's where we're at. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Jason Rance will join us with some wild stories out of the left coast. That's next. (laughs) 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday from Washington, D.C. in the Tony Snow Studios. Glad to have you all here between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And this last hour of those three is the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Terrific, delicious, refreshing, expanding thelongdrink.com. That's their website. You can see where they are sold near you. That list continues to grow basically by the day. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Our website here is available for all ages. GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of goodies there, including the free podcast, which is on demand, no charge to you every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Joining us now from Fox News HQ up in New York is Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rant Show on our great affiliate out in Seattle, KTTH. And Jason, good to talk to you. Cool that you're up there in studio. Yeah, it's fun to actually broadcast from HQ. For sure. And it's funny because you were just down here in D.C. You arrived in New York yesterday. I had been in New York for days, came down back to D.C. yesterday. So ships passing in the night, barely missed each other in both of these cities, but glad to have you out east. Glad to be here. We I missed you by this much. I know. But I did see some of your work on Friday. You spent part of your evening on Friday down here in the D.C. area outside the home of Justice Amy Coney Barrett covering some of these radical protests at her house, all playing out within days of the assassination attempt against another justice. And I'm just wondering what your impressions were watching that play out. I know you talked to some of the people who were there. What struck you about these protesters and these protests in this kind of quiet Mm cul-de-sac neighborhood in northern Virginia? I mean, it really is a quiet cul-de-sac neighborhood. There were lots of neighbors who, during the course of their march and even before everything began, they came up to me and said, yeah, these people are not wanted here. And the reason why is because they're not really accomplishing anything except just causing some problems for folks in the neighborhood. It's not even clear whether or not the family was home, Comey's family was home during all of this. So, uh, you know, they get together, they uh, sort of powwow before they start their march. There were only about seven or eight people there when I was covering it. And rather ironically, after I asked this one woman some questions, she turned to me and said, stop harassing me or I'm going to call the cops. And that is just so ironic, <laughs> given the fact oh. that they are literally there Rich. to harass people. Oh, it was amazing. And they, they didn't really have anything of substance to say. They were using some of the same talking points. We're headed towards the handmaid's tale. This is a woman uh, in a justice who is only listening to the men in her religion and her husband. It, it was just it was very, very ignorant and it, it lacked any meaningful substance that could have moved this conversation forward. Well, it still just blows my mind, Jason, that we're less than a week removed from an attempted murder charge being filed against someone who, inspired by left-wing anger, came all the way across the country to murder Justice Kavanaugh. And literally the day that that news broke, 
these people were back outside mm-hmm. Kavanaugh's house, a lot more of them than what you witnessed with Amy Coney Barrett. This group, Ruth sent us, also mentioning where she sends her kids to school, seems shockingly out of bounds. The doxing of these justices, the doxing of their families, and we have yet to get a condemnation from the White House on the doxing. I, I don't even know what to say about that other than it's totally disgraceful. And I guess they feel like they can just kind of wait this thing out. And the press probably won't ask him too much about it. I mean, it's a smart strategy from their perspective, isn't it? Because the press very clearly is not responding to this news with Kavanaugh. They didn't really cover it when it happened. It was buried in the New York Times. It's still being, for the most part, completely ignored when you're looking at some of the other networks. And it wouldn't surprise me if there was a huge portion of this country that has no idea that that event even occurred. There was an assassination attempt that was foiled. And no one is having that conversation. And some people legitimately don't know that it happened. And boy, does that say a whole lot about our press. 100%. I would guess that most Americans do not know that it happened. If I had to bet, I would bet a majority are unaware. And that would not be the case, as I mentioned earlier, and I was talking about over the weekend on TV. That would not be the case if the roles were reversed. We all know it. The press knows it. And they're just comfortable with it, I guess. Um, And that is what it is. And I think it really underscores the problem that we have in this country. It goes far beyond mere bias. And now I'm going back to my opening monologue here again. In the meantime, Jason, I want to talk to you about your home state of Washington. Did you see this story about your senator, Patty Murray, who is up for reelection this cycle? She has already spent a lot of money on a new ad campaign. And again, we're in what, mid-June, ahead of November, going after her would-be Republican opponent who's a young military wife named Tiffany Smiley. Mm -hmm. And I understand Washington state is very blue, very tough for Republicans. My money would be on Patty Murray winning re-election. However, the fact that she seems scared enough to be dipping into her hard-dollar account to go on the offensive and on the attack in June – As a deep blue Democrat in a deep blue state, she must be seeing data that has her spooked enough to do something like this, right? Yeah, I think internally she's probably seeing what we're seeing sort of the public-facing polls where Tiffany Smiley is clearly gaining some momentum, gaining some traction. She has officially moved the campaign into the lean Democrat or likely Democrat spot or from the likely Democrat spot. And it's because of all of the issues right now that are happening in Washington have got voters who are very far to the left rethinking the direction of the policies that, you know, the politicians they put in place are forwarding. I mean, we we have in Seattle for the first time in some 30 years, a Republican got to the Seattle city attorney spot. You have, uh, it's $5.54 a gallon average in Washington state right now. We are one of the leading states missing out on the baby formula. The the shortage has hit our state really, really hard. And we haven't really heard any solutions from any of our lawmakers. Patty Murray, chief amongst them, you know, she's someone who's in leadership on the Democratic side. She's always by the podium next to Chuck Schumer. You would think that she might have something to say. And yet, not only is she mostly silent, we don't even really see her in Washington. I, I cannot tell you the last time she sat down for a local interview and actually stayed more than a few days 
in Washington state. She's up in the other Washington. And I do think a lot of the voters are starting to resent it, that they are really going through this shift in thinking. Now, does that mean Tiffany Smiley is going to have an easy shot? No, but obviously spending so much money this early on is rather significant. Now, all Tiffany Smiley has to do is just continue on. She's actually going across the state. She's meeting with people. She's talking with people. She's hearing concerns. And most importantly, she's putting forward suggestions on what can be done on all of these issues, whereas Patty Murray isn't. So if she can sort of hold the line right now, Tiffany Smiley, that's a good indication that internally they're seeing numbers that we just haven't seen yet, and they're probably worse for them. I want to talk to you about some of the things happening in Washington state. You touched on a couple of them right there. Why a lot of people are dissatisfied, even in a place where Republicans generally are anathema. When you go to Starbucks to pick up some coffee or do some work and you can't go to the bathroom at the Starbucks because they're closed, or I guess they are considering closing their bathrooms to the public again in parts of Seattle. Why is that happening? And is that the kind of wake up call, little things like that, that might build into something of a reset or at least blowback, even in an area like yours that is so cartoonishly left wing. Yeah, no kidding. So as the economy is opening up, as people are going back to work, they're going back to their local Starbucks. The problem is the homeless have pretty much taken over many of the bathrooms in these spots. Sometimes they're dealing with clear mental illness. Other times they're leaving their drug paraphernalia in the bathrooms. And this, weirdly enough, this was a story pre-COVID. And Starbucks decided to close all the restrooms and there was controversy around it and it was deemed as uh, mean spirited towards homeless people who just need a place to use a restroom. So they ended up giving in and reopening the restrooms. Then COVID hits. Well, COVID is now to the side as we're getting back to normal. And the problem has just gotten worse for Starbucks. So now they're back in that camp of reconsidering. And this time, if they end up closing the restrooms, I don't think they're going to get the level of pushback that they got a few years ago. I think that folks have seen in Washington state, in particular Seattle, just how bad the homelessness crisis has has gotten. And they're not going to push back and say it lacks compassion the way that they did in the past. We've also talked a lot about schools and indoctrination in schools. There are people who are insistent that that type of thing is not happening, and it's a right-wing fever dream. Then whenever you bring it up, whether it's on gender identity or race or what have you, example after example, and they sort of fall silent, or they say it's cherry-picking, or they say it's good, right? This is the game that's played. You wrote about something that happened at one of the local high schools in your area last week. You actually sent it to me, and I read it, and again, it read like a caricature. It was. It felt almost like Babylon Bee-style uh, satire, but it's real, and I think it very much falls under this category, so let's roll it. Woke Tales. Woke Tales. What was this pledge the teachers were trying to get high school students to sign as like a prerequisite yeah. for qualifying for some sort of program or something? Yes, it's happening at Eastlake High School. The program is called Link Crew. It's actually, I'm told, a national program. It's basically connecting juniors and seniors in high school with the incoming freshmen to help them cope with the transition into high school, make sure they're not getting picked on and whatnot. And there's a Yeah, we had that. It was called called Peer Counselors. Yeah, it's basically the same program. In this case, 
in order to be one of those counselors, you have to sign up a, a, to a code of conduct. And for the most part, a lot of it is not controversial at all. You know, you'll curtail bullying. You will be a good representative of the school. You will show school spirit, all the stuff that you would expect. And then you get to the last statement of beliefs and you're supposed to put a check mark next to each one. I believe that black lives matter. Love is love. No human is illegal. Women's rights are human rights. And kindness is everything. Now, the last one is kind of silly. It's not true. Kindness is not everything. But that's not controversial at all. All the other ones are very clearly. (laughs) So they're trying to make these kids adhere to the lawn sign. Pretty much right? the rainbow, the rainbow lawn sign that people put out like a little morality yep. billboard on their yard saying, like, look how good of a person I am. Exactly. Like, like conservatives mock all the time. That's actually in there. It is absolutely in there. And as you know, of course, it's not just a virtue signal, but it's a virtue signal for political beliefs. Because if you had that exact same pledge and it said that all lives matter, that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, that life begins at conception, that we should build a wall, whatever it is, we know very clearly folks would be really ticked off at that. And this would be a controversy. But because these staff members and this administration, they live in this echo chamber, this little bubble of Seattle-style progressive politics— They didn't seem to think that this might be a problem to put into a code of conduct. You are basically telling kids you have to abide by these political positions in order to participate in this non-political club. And that is very clearly over the line. Yeah, you have to be be a a political progressive who embraces the bromides and the sloganeering of one political side. And if you identify as a member of the tribe, whether you're lying or not, you have to. In order to be a part of this program, which is something that people want to do, it's something that people want to put on their college resumes, for example, is the argument basically that if they objected, if someone said, well, I'm concerned about what you're asking me to endorse here on certain levels, what does this mean? Am I saying that because I'm checking this box, I have to believe X, Y, or Z? If you ask questions or decline to check one of those boxes, you're ineligible to serve in that position? Yeah. According to the rules that they put out in this email, this two uh, staff advisors, you have to abide by every part of the code of conduct. I reached out to the school. The administration said that they will look into it and talk to the teachers about what Uh they did, which is kind of a, we didn't realize they did this. So let us try to clean this up in the background. Please never do a follow-up again. Well, I'd imagine you will be following up, especially if you've got parents who are upset about it. And if I were a parent, I would absolutely be upset about it because, I mean, leave that stuff out. That has nothing to do with the job. It's completely irrelevant to making high school a a better experience for young kids. This is so absurd and so over the line. And the the only thing here is the parents had to sign off on this checklist as well, this code of conduct. I would love to talk to the parents who decided, oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm just going to sign it. Because, again, if they got that same exact thing with the conservative version of that list, they, of course, would be upset. Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show, KTTH out in Seattle, Tacoma, our affiliate here on The Guy Benson Show in the Pacific Northwest. But he is in the Northeast at least for a little while, D.C. for the weekend, now up in New York, lots of TV on the schedule there. Jason, enjoy the Big Apple, and we will talk to you very soon. I appreciate it. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you're listening on the broadcast, 
You're listening to Sinatra bumping us in. New York, New York. I'm trying to not get overly excited about the Yankees yet. I'm a Yankees fan. It's only mid-June, but with a record of 44-16, and it's pretty damn good. And they're putting up gaudy numbers. They're winning in all sorts of different ways, including a walk-off on Friday night against the Cubs in extra innings. Then I was at the game on Saturday. They won 8 nothing. Aaron Judge, who I think is, at least for now, early days, the leader in the clubhouse for AL MVP. You can make a few other cases for other people, but he led off the bottom of the first with a home run. Then it was off to the races from there. Yankees won 8 nothing. They hit six home runs. Then yesterday, they swept the Cubs, completing the sweep with an 18-4 victory. And it's funny because in the first inning of the middle game on Saturday, the one that I was at with some friends, the Cubs tweeted sort of this troll because one of the Cubs outfielders went up and didn't rob a home run but made a very nice play jumping up onto the wall and making a terrific catch to rob Giancarlo Stanton of probably at least a double. And the Cubs tweeted – At that moment, after that play happened, Yankees fans think everything's a home run. And after the game, the Yankees responded something like, could you blame us? And after the Cubs sent that tweet, the Yankees went on to hit nine home runs and scored 25 runs over the ensuing 15 innings en route to the clean three-game sweep. So it's just fun, beautiful night at the ballpark, very little drama. I told you about a month ago about another game I was at at the stadium with a lot of drama. Walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth. This was just easy breezy, gorgeous night, a couple beers, and the game was never really in doubt. So sorry to my Chicago Cub fan friends, but it's been a fun ride so far for the Yankees. Not sure if it's going to be sustainable, but so far, so good. And I also have to say, a little icing on the cake on Saturday was the Rangers getting bounced from the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. As a Devils fan, you love to see it. And now I will be rooting for the Colorado Avalanche in the Stanley Cup Finals starting Wednesday. Lightning have just won too much. With all due respect to our Florida listeners, we will step aside. We will come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on the show today on The Guy Benson Show, we welcome back our colleague, Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. A lot to get to with him on the politics of the day, blame games from President Biden, the race on both sides of the aisle toward 2024, some whispers and rumors about that among Republicans and Democrats. Here's part of my conversation with Britt Hume. I just am wondering when President Biden and his team are going to decide that the Putin talking point when it comes to anything bad happening in the country simply is not working and might be actively angering and insulting people. Here's what the president said on Friday when he was reacting to really bad inflation numbers, worse than expected inflation numbers, married with record highs on gas prices. He went back to that same well again, cut 19, I understand Americans are anxious, and they're anxious for good reason. 
I was raised in a household when the price of gasoline rose precipitously. It was the discussion at the table. It made a difference when food prices went up. But we've never seen anything like Putin's tax on both food and gas. Putin's tax on food and gas and bread. It's just like, it's tiresome. Yeah, I agree, Guy, and I don't think the public will be much convinced that uh, Putin is responsible for the rise in gasoline prices and other prices as well, for the simple reason that these prices were going up sharply before the uh, war in Ukraine began. Now, that's not to say that that, uh, that the war in Ukraine hasn't exacerbated the situation. I think it has. Right, right. But even if that, were, even if, even if it were, if it were even more Putin's fault than seems to be the case. It's still the job of the president of the United States, by virtue of policies, to try to counteract it. And the evidence that any any successful counteracting has happened is not exactly apparent. Things seem to be worsening. Yep. And there are some discussions in Washington, D.C. and beyond. There's a big New York Times story about it that we will talk about later this hour about Democrats starting to look for maybe an off-ramp. When it comes to Joe Biden in 2024, not excited about his prospects. I see the press secretary just moments ago at the press briefing at the White House insisted that the president is running for reelection in 24. I'm dubious of that. We'll get into that a little bit later on in the hour. But on the other side of the aisle, Brett, there's a Washington Post story headline. The shadow race is underway for the Republican presidential nomination. Subhead. At least 15 potential 2024 candidates are traveling the country, huddling with donors or testing out messages, even if Trump runs. And they name not all 15 of the people in this piece, but it's Pence, it's Cotton, it's DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Larry Hogan, Ted Cruz, Tim Scott, Rick Scott, Mike Pompeo. I know there's some discussion about Marco Rubio as well. Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, who's termed out uh, as the governor there. Those are some of the names in the mix. And then, of course, there's uh, the former president, Donald Trump, who there are rumors that he's thinking about even announcing that he's going to seek another term as soon as next month. He might do it before the midterms around July 4th. At least that's something that they're allegedly toying with down at Mar-a-Lago. I know it's extremely early days, Britt, but I'm just wondering – what you make of these types of stories and how you view the landscape looking ahead, not to this upcoming election cycle, but the big one a couple of years from now. Well, I think Trump would like to run, uh, but it's impossible to tell from what he's doing whether he really intends to or not, because, you know, even if he were not, he would want to be the center of attention because he always wants to be the center of attention and will be the, and would want to be the center of attention if he doesn't run, because that's how Trump is. So he doesn't give us many really good clues by his actions. Um, his preoccupation, continuing preoccupation with what happened in or what he claims happened in 2020, I think is a is a very weak issue to try to mount a further campaign on. Um, I think people have moved on and are moving on, and the only people that are preoccupied with 2020 right now, um, or the 2020 campaign and its aftermath, are Donald Trump. And that committee in Congress that purports to be conducting an investigation of it. Um, that's where we and are. And the media. Right. So you've got yeah, you've got the Democrats, well, you've got the media, you've got the committee and Trump. 
My full interview with Brett Hume available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, no charge to you. That's every day on demand, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, have you ever left something in the backseat of an Uber or a taxi cab? An interesting story about that as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. And check out our website. We always remind you of this, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is there and free every single day. I'll be on the special report panel this evening right around 645 Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Brett Bayer, then myself, Kim Strassel, and Harold Ford Jr. Hope to see you there. You can also set your DVR over on the television side. Meanwhile... This is a story that we talked about on a different show over the weekend. I was guest hosting and co-hosting with three others, the big Saturday and big Sunday shows. And it's a lot of politics and news, but we mix in some lighter topics from time to time. This is one of them. Uber puts out a list every year of the items that people leave behind with drivers when they use the ride-sharing app. And you can imagine with so many, what, millions of these rides across the country every week, you're going to get some weird things that happen. And so just to get into the news cycle, I guess, Uber says, all right, here's our list. So this was from last year. And usually it's typical stuff, topping the list. Wallets, phones. I saw vape pens was up there. But then you get some more colorful examples. For instance, the one that's getting a lot of attention is someone left his or her grandmother's teeth in the backseat of an Uber. So some dentures. Someone left an enormous quantity of caviar. Like, that's a big one to forget. Then you get examples like a Billie Eilish ukulele. I'm not even sure exactly what that means. I assume it's not hers. Like Billie Eilish branded ukulele, a Bernie Sanders fanny pack, and the list goes on. And I'm just scrolling through. Ten pounds of hamburger meat is another one. So this just sparked a conversation earlier on our planning call about things that we have forgotten or left behind in the past, whether it's in a car or elsewhere. And, Christine, you had one situation where what your phone got left behind i was uh having a night a responsible adult night with maybe some adult beverages Uh uh-huh and i took an uber home and i left my phone in the car when did you realize that you left it the next morning not even that night You didn't go to plug your phone in or something or set an alarm or anything? It was the next day? Yeah, I definitely didn't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very, (laughs) very. I'm not. Very, very, very responsible evening of drinking, obviously, is what happened here. So how did you get it back? Because the easiest way to get it back is to go on your phone to the app, find the guy or gal who drove you and contact them. But without your phone, what did you do? So it. I didn't order the Uber. Bobby did. So he was able to contact. I had just left my phone there. 
So he was able to contact the Uber driver, but he, the guy wouldn't come. I even offered him money. He would not come to our house to drop the phone off. So I had was to. Was it Christmas time? Did he see the inflatables? Like, you know, I'm not going anywhere near that house. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember, but I know I had to go drive to the New Jersey Turnpike. And you know where the airport is? And right across is that big IKEA and the Toys R Us. Yeah, in, I in had, Newark. Yep, I had to meet him in that park. Real safe, actually, looking back. I went by myself. I had to meet him in that parking oh. lot to get my phone. Was it at least during the day? Mm-hmm. Like daylight hours? Okay, so that's a little bit better. But it worked out, and you were without your phone for how long? Less than a day? Yeah, I, I had met him on the turnpike that afternoon. Sounds very strange okay. to say. Yeah, but you know, you got the job done. Dan, you did something similar, right? Yeah, so I was sent at my last job. I was sent to Seattle for an event. I was going to interview Bear Grylls for this event, and so it was a long flight out there. And I got the Uber, went to the hotel, walked out, checked checked into the hotel, got up to my room, realized I left all of my luggage in the Uber. And so Wait, I, you got to your room before you realized I this. Was, yeah, I was just it was such a long trip, and I was so tired, and I didn't even think about it. I had my phone. I made sure I had my phone. Got all the way up there and realized I didn't have my, like, weekender bag. And it was, like, Friday night, so I couldn't go, like, buy anything. We had to be up early the next morning to, like, go out and do this. So I had to, <laughs> I had to borrow clothes from the cameraman that was working this event. <laughs> and so I was wearing clothes that were, like, too short for me. I was wearing these, like, pants that were just, like, like yeah, floodwaters. Yeah, yeah, So I was wearing these ridiculous clothes. And finally, I got in touch with the Uber guy. He brought it back in the afternoon the next day. Um, but it was a whole day later, and I was just without all my stuff for that long. Wyatt, have you ever forgotten anything? You seem far too responsible to forget something, like maybe a cardigan or something. No? Yeah, no. I've I've never lost anything in an Uber. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Another scintillating story from the life of Quiet Wyatt. Well, my story that I briefly told on the air yesterday that I can expand upon a little bit here is not about an Uber, but it helps explain why I'm such a fan of Uber compared to taxis. And I have basically sworn off taxis as best as I can help it for the rest of my life for this reason. It was 2015, so I'm still scarred seven years later. I was in New York City, and my best friend Mary Catherine Hamm had just recently lost her husband in a very sad accident. And I had dinner while I was in New York with our mutual friend, Kennedy, our colleague here at Fox. And she and I had not really downloaded or had an opportunity to chat since that tragedy. So we had a pretty heavy dinner, just the two of us sitting there. And it was pretty emotional. And we both got emotional, understandably, you know, when someone that you know, someone young, someone who matters so much to someone you're close to dies in such a shocking way. It was not a lighthearted or pleasant dinner, but it was part of the grieving process. So I had all of my stuff with me because I was supposed to get in a Fox car later and go back to New Jersey to stay with my parents for a couple days. They were still living in New Jersey at the time. But Kennedy said, you know what? That was a tough dinner. Come back to my place, meet my daughters. We'll make a nightcap just for the two of us. We'll whip up a cocktail and we'll end the evening on a happier note. Do you want to just come over just briefly? And I said, yes. And we were 
dining actually close to her apartment at the time, but not quite close enough, and it was starting to rain. So she hailed a cab. I put all my stuff in the back seat of this cab, or actually in the trunk of the cab. And cab drives maybe five minutes. We get to her building. I'm still in this fairly emotional state. I get out of the cab, and I'd never been to her place at that point up until then. And she lived in this very tall building, which was pretty new and had cool architecture. So I looked up at it, and I was commenting on the architecture of the building. And before I know it, I turn around, and the taxi is pulling away with all of my belongings in the back, and it is gone into the New York night. So I'm freaking out. We get up to Kennedy's apartment. I meet her kids for the first time. They still think of me as the guy who lost all of his stuff. That's how they remember me. Like, oh, yeah, mom's friend guy who just loses everything and was, like, sitting at our kitchen table sweating and stressing. Like, yep, that's I made quite an impression on those young girls who are now, gosh, not so young anymore. But what you do, I guess, in these circumstances is you call 311, which is the non-emergency New York City number. I wanted to report that this had happened. Is there any way we can figure out how to get the stuff back? Identify the cab or something. And the dispatcher responded by saying, well, do you have the medallion number of this taxi? I was like, what? Yes, ma'am, you you nailed it. I'm the guy who left all of his earthly belongings, forgot them in the trunk of a taxi, but I had the presence of mind to memorize the medallion number. Like, of course I don't have the medallion number. She said, okay, well, you can file a missing items report, and good luck. It doesn't really often work out very well, but there's a few different places where lost and found stuff gets dropped off. She said, I would try for the next couple of days. So I called a few precincts. I did all the stuff. And the long story short is it was gone forever. It was all of my clothing. It was my computer bag, my laptop. This was thousands of dollars worth of stuff. And it was just a yellow taxi cab in New York, basically anonymous. I did not memorize any medallion number. And for whatever reason, I guess the cab driver decided that it would be too much of a pain to hand it in somewhere. Or maybe he could sell my stuff off somewhere. I did have my laptop, like, permanently shut down. I think you can do that. I did a few other things. That was gone. And it's still... A traumatizing experience, having had that happen. And I have very occasionally left something behind in an Uber. Like one time I was bringing a pretty good bottle of wine to someone's house, and I just didn't have the presence of mind. I was distracted. I got out, realized I'd left the wine behind, immediately went on my app, called the guy, and said, hey, I'll give you a tip if you quickly come back. He did, no problem. I think maybe once I did it with my wallet or something. And that's the advantage of the rideshare apps. You can instantly track down the person and incentivize them to come back and work something out, whether it's immediately or the next day, like we heard from Christine and Dan. There's actual recourse. You are very likely to get your stuff back. In the taxi situation, you are extremely unlikely to ever get it back because you're never going to find that cab again. So I just wanted to tell the story. It's embarrassing I still get, like, kind of upset thinking about it. But because it was the topic, 
And because Kennedy actually likes to remind me of this, not to like poke fun at me, but because that's like the shortcut in her daughter's heads of who I am. That's like my claim to fame in their household. I figured I would share. So for all the issues and all the downsides of Uber and surge pricing and all this stuff, to me, that extra layer of protection of being able to retrace your steps and get something that you may have left behind, that is invaluable. And that's why at this point, if I'm ever going to take a taxi, and I have very occasionally, it is only when I have nothing with me and it's a quick ride from point A to point B with nothing that I might leave behind. I'm much more cognizant, and it's Uber otherwise. I wonder if anyone called for the teeth back or the Bernie Sanders fanny pack. I feel like you might just leave that one behind permanently in the backseat of the Uber. We got to run. Up on special report coming up in the next hour, Fox News Channel. See you there on the panel. Then right back here tomorrow on the radio show. Same time, same place. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.